0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to The Midpoint. I'm super excited about our guest today because we're going to talk about a passion of mine, uh, flying and aviation. So I've got Shashank with me today, who is an expert in the whole aviation industry. We're actually old-time friends from way back in 2000, I don't remember, uh, in Singapore. So welcome. <laughs> welcome, Shashank. Thanks for joining.
1: Great to be speaking once again, Rico. I remember our walks around Zurich and our walks around Singapore I think back in two thousand five two thousand
0: six you you you're remembering better than me honestly i couldn't couldn't tell I think it must have been two thousand and five in Singapore that's for sure oh man uh that's it's been such a long uh, a long time, and you've come such a long way because I met you when you're still a student so I mean um Back in Zurich, and afterwards, we kind of crossed over because I was working for an airline, and you asked me for advice. Like today, we flipped this around. You have tons and tons more experience in that area, and we're going to talk about aviation today. So tell us a little bit maybe first about yourself and how you got here, uh, if you may, and what got you into aviation in the first place.
1: So after I finished studying in Singapore, I actually went to the U.S., and I was working for an MIT startup in Boston but I realized I used to love planes a lot and I loved flying and planes and aircraft and aviation, specifically commercial aviation. And I had written, if you recall, we had a professor called John Davis. I had written two books on branding with him and there was this interest in marketing and in branding. And yet I was stuck in, in technology. And there was this technology aspect. So I started Simply Flying with the premise, okay, how can I help airlines build trust in travel? And the way, Uh, to do that was by ensuring that you're marketing and reaching out to the customers in using the right technologies. Hence, I started simplifying.com, which was initially a blog 15 years ago in 2008, uh, and then grew on to become one of the leading strategy consulting firms in digital strategy, branding and communications for airlines around the world. And it's been a long journey, but, you know, in the first 10 years, we had already worked with over 100 airlines and airports globally, including the one that you used to work for, uh, which was one of our prized clients.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I think, still one of the most favorite airlines of mine and favorite airports of mine. <laughs> is. I think you sent me, I remember you sending me something and asking for sort of, I think was what maybe one of the first blog posts that you want me to read through and see if uh, if that resonated, right? I mean, you hit, you hit that, uh, your blog hit right uh, around the time when social media became popular and airlines didn't have a clue, I guess, um, what they were doing, right? So there was a lot lot for them to catch up on. And I think, uh, how how far have have they come in terms of technology since?
1: Oh, long way, long, long way, right? I remember giving my first speech on how airlines can be using Facebook uh, to drive sales or Twitter to provide customer service. And I got off the stage. And this really old gentleman comes to me. I'm standing uh, in the middle of 10 people. Uh, it's my first speech, so I'm already rather nervous. And he says, so I'm the CEO of this ex-airline. And I said, hello, sir, how are you? And I thought he was going to ask me about the speech. He says, firstly, how old are you? And I was... I turned red. I didn't know how to answer that question. I didn't answer. He didn't even wait for my answer. And then he says, so all this Facebook stuff and Twitter, I've heard this from my granddaughter. How is this even relevant to me? And that was the first conversation, how it started. And I said, you know, we have to build trust. You got to go where your customers are. And we helped everyone from Malaysia Airlines with their crisis communication plans to Airbus and Boeing. And how do you launch new planes like 787 and Airbus A350s and A380s? Uh, and use social media to actually truly connect with customers and build trust.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I always see you post. I think uh, a lot of those great videos, I think there's, there's a ton of videos, but then they stand out once in a while, be it a safety video, be it something just to, to launch a product or, or sometimes just a branding video. I always, I think I always, catch them because you promoting, sort of you you commenting on them, not promoting, sorry, commenting on them, and maybe also sometimes criticizing them, do uh, on LinkedIn or any other social channels. Uh, so so thanks for that, by the way, because that, ha- that keeps me updated with actually the, the relevant stuff. Um, for <laughs> um, So where where you started in social, with social media with them, but how has that sort of, si- since you started working with airlines, how has that shifted away? I guess they got more used to it, they're doing it themselves right now how what's your focus at the moment or sort of how what kind of what what kind of areas do airlines still need your support um when it comes to consulting
1: yeah so our business has evolved as the industry matured and we became market leaders in um, digital strategy uh when we started like i said in 2008 our question was how do you help airlines build trust and in that time it was by providing customer service through twitter and you know doing YouTube videos, actually Google video. YouTube was still nascent when I when I started and YouTube came along after that. Um, then COVID hit a couple of years back and we asked ourselves the same question. How can we help aviation build trust? And during COVID, we launched five products because our business was down 98%, obviously mm-hmm. airlines mm-hmm. were hit hard. Uh, we launched five new products, all of them at the intersection of health safety because we believed airlines have to get health safety right and testing right to build trust. So, one of the products we launched was a global audit for airlines on their health safety measures. And even today, if you fly airlines like KLM or Turkish Airlines on their IFE, you will see certified by Simplifying that we are safe to fly. Or if you're transiting through Paris and the new Air France lounge that is certified by us saying it's clean and safe and it's regular. Uh, or you might receive amenity kits on uh, Saudi Arabian Airlines or on mm-hmm. United, saying that they are diamond certified by Simplifying. So we launched a certification, which helped build trust. Mm-hmm. We also launched um, COVID testing platform, which allowed airlines to sell COVID testing within the booking path, rather than passengers scrambling to figure out what are the regulations um, and um, you know booking their own tests. Airlines could mm-hmm. facilitate, hence building trust in travel. That was a fun little experiment where we piloted this with an airline in Mexico. Revenues were doubling month on month. We got investment from an ex-airline CEO, spun off the product as a company, hired a new CEO in Brisbane, hired a technology team in India, and sold that company 40 months later, uh, last February, oh, uh, wow. almost a year ago. So that was a lot of fun. But coming to today, we ask ourselves again, how can aviation build trust? How can we build trust in travel? And we truly believe that to build trust, airlines have now got to get sustainability right. And this is definitely a consumer concern in parts of Europe, uh, parts of North America, maybe not as much in Asia Pacific or let's say places like India or Mexico, where people are flying for the first time. Yet we believe that in the next five years, this has got to be the most pressing Issue airlines need to start addressing head-on. Otherwise, it will be too late. Uh, So that's the theme. How do you build trust? 15 years ago, social media. Three years ago, health safety. Going forward, sustainability. So last Earth Day in 2022, we launched Simplifying's sustainability practice. And that including launching a podcast on sustainable aviation. This is the only podcast on sustainable aviation. I have a new book coming out this fall. Called sustainability in the air, uh, and you know we are really leading the conversation, trying to separate the signal from the noise here in the space.
0: Awesome, yeah. Let's let's dive into that in a second. Um, I love. I also love that you brought up COVID because one thing that uh, I mean I don't follow the continuous statistics, right? It, but i have feeling from the the sort of European domestic flights I do. Um, people are flying again. How is that with long haul? Is that, is that bouncing back as well? Or is that back to pre-pandemic levels or is it lower? Well, do you know do you know where Every long haul
1: flight I've been on has been full mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and completely packed, especially in North America and Europe. Uh, yes, there are Asian countries where flights are not necessarily packed because borders have just started opening. So, for example, to China or to and from China, for example, or Japan, which recently mm-hmm. opened. Um, yet we see, you know, numbers are creeping back up uh, in most parts of the world, if not exceeding.
0: Okay, yeah. So if they're back to pre-COVID or once they get to pre-COVID, we definitely need to talk about um, what kind of impact these airplanes have, where aviation role has, right?
1: Yeah, it's not just about the numbers, right? Um, The profile of the travelers is changing as well. Uh, Take, for example, uh, Christchurch International Airport in New Zealand. (laughs) numbers are still down. I think it's about 70% of what 2019 was. But the spend is twice as much because Americans are flying to Christchurch and spending twice as much as they would earlier because one, they have saved a lot over the course of the pandemic. The US dollar is much stronger and people are staying longer. If they're flying so far, they're not flying for a weekend. The international day trip is dead. The international weekend holiday is also dead. People are taking two week long vacations with a couple of days of work uh, in there or remote work in there every alternate day. My brother is right now in India with his uh, young family uh, for three months and he's working two weeks, taking two weeks off, working two weeks, taking two weeks off. The nature of travel has completely changed. We don't need numbers to be back to 2019 levels.
0: Do And do, do people fly more? business as well or does that have because it, that's how when, when you calculate sort of calculate the emissions usually business travelers are being weighed in more because they need more space per sort of seat right um do you see any difference or are, pe- are people flying less more economy
1: um so i think a lot of people who used to fly economy are now flying flying premium economy mm-hmm. as opposed to business and those who are flying for business are taking fewer but longer trips yeah. So they're not doing, you know, Monday to Thursday trips uh, between mm-hmm. London and New York for a banker, for example. But when they do go, they might go for 10 days. Yeah. Um, yeah and I that, think you, you make a good
0: point with the remote work um, yeah. that, you know, why why not build in part of a few days of work uh, in between? Since, I mean, maybe that's one of the good things that came out of, of the pandemic that people got a jump start on digitalization, um, yeah, getting used exactly. to Zoom and getting used to meetings. Uh, I liked your um, statement about the day trip is dead. Uh, I would say so too. If you can do this in a day trip, maybe it's not even worth flying, right? M- worth going. Unless it's like really, really important and that, you know, then then people will go anyway.
1: Yeah, and, and now people understand, right? When mm. you say you're joining via Zoom, people understand because guess what? Even on the client side, half the team is joining on Zoom.
0: <laughs> right, Correct. not
1: everyone is in the office because even on the client side, people are working two days a week from home or three days a week from home.
0: Mm. That so, sorry, I I have to add a story here really quick because it's pandemic related and exactly it was exactly that weird situation. I was flying um, in March when the pandemic came, sort of the wave went across Europe. Literally, the week that happened, um, I was actually in the UK for a client meeting and on the day that I arrived, they basically uh, issued a policy that people cannot enter their offices anymore. Um, but it was a meeting that I had to attend. It was sort of an, an important vendor um, discussion. And I took it from the hotel across the street. Everybody was virtual. And I was just sitting in their hotel. Um For the meeting. It was four hours. We were basically almost waving at each other through the window. And then I took an early flight back. It was uh, so ridiculous. Uh, But yeah, that that was it.
1: (laughs) I clearly recall my flight in that same month to London as well. It was the end of February uh, when I was in London, actually middle of February when I was in London. Like I said uh, earlier, I flew Swiss via Zurich. My wife insisted I put a mask on and I was like really she says yeah just just put it on there's something going on in China I'm like okay fine I'll I'll put a mask on I did put a mask and as I was going through Zurich airport and I'm boarding my flight through London a lady from the customer service comes up to me and asks is something wrong with you sir I yes, said <laughs> no I'm fine are you feeling sick? And I'm feeling completely fine. I'm just trying to protect myself. Nobody was masked in the airport. Neither was she nor in flight. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you land in London. And then by the time it's time to go back, the world mm-hmm. has
0: changed. It was a very confusing time because sometimes some countries wanted masks. Some flights didn't have sort of the policy. was. It's a very yeah. confusing time, I have to say. Well, okay, let's go back to the topic of, uh, let's say, overall sustainability and, and maybe ask, a personal question to you first, looking at the last 20 years, we both love flying. Um, how has flying changed for you uh, with sort of an eye on sustainability as as you may be writing the book as well?
1: Very good question. I had a wake-up moment, uh, actually, in 2020, when um, one of the people on my team, who's now my director of sustainability, interestingly, uh, forced me to calculate my carbon footprint. I said, come on, this is such a futile exercise You're just trying to guilt me into eat more vegan food or something like that. And when I did it, I almost fell off the chair because my carbon footprint was twice that of the highest per capita carbon footprint in the world, uh, which is a country in the Middle East. And I I just had to redo it again. I did it again. And my 2019 living uh, was just way off the charts. And that was not because... And the thing is, I was doing most things right. I had just turned vegan. So I was you know, not eating meat. I was driving electric and I had for the last uh, seven years before that, uh, I was living in a city which was completely hydroelectric, so no coal. So, you know, from a day-to-day living perspective, I was biking a lot, walking a lot, you know, I was living pretty much a green life, but I was also flying. That year I had taken 45 flights. Uh, it was down from 75 flights a few years before that, mostly for work. But that year I had taken 45 flights and that just got me thinking. It took me two more years for that to sink in. It was a slow process, I'll be the first to admit. I didn't think, you know, I I wasn't one of those who would be, um, you know, who would be guilted into (laughs) suddenly flying less. Having said that, the new me, uh, the new normal after COVID is, I follow this concept uh, which I call intentional flying where the best way to reduce your life's emissions and also flying emissions is to just be very conscious about when you fly and where you fly and why you fly. So, as like I said, a few years ago, I flew 75 flights a year. Just pre-pandemic, I flew 45 flights for the year. And last year for 2022, I intentionally flew 15 flights. Not trips, total number of flights, including connecting flights. Mm-hmm. And I think I had entered the month of November having flown only six flights and then I had to do a long haul with three connections on uh, on each side. So that, you know, went up quite a bit. Um, so I really think firstly, do I need to be there? Do I absolutely need to be there? So I, and I drew a pyramid looking at my own life. Uh, so I, I did zero conferences last year, uh, which was only just going for the conference. So if I'm there for a client meeting or something, sure, you know, I can add on. I did uh, zero flights for client pitches, which often tend to, tends to be a uh, business travel. And the only travel I did for work was um, for actual delivering of client projects when mm-hmm. it was absolutely necessary. Um, so, eliminated conferences and pitches continued to travel for client work. And when I did travel for client work, I combined that with family holidays, um, workations is how I like to call it, where, you know, we traveled as a family together. I worked for two or three days, and then we took a week off or 10 days off and traveled together in in whichever new country we were in. So those have been the big shifts I have done in my behavior. Um, And, you know, the the people I've worked with in the last 10 years within the aviation industry have been sending me messages. Are you crazy? You're supposed to serve the industry. And I said, listen, I am, because when I do fly, I'm playing paying more to fly non-stop, as much as possible. Uh, I'm a higher yielding passenger for you, the airline, hence more valuable when I do fly. Um, and we have to recognize that aviation is, a, is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries. So today, there are only two things we can do to reduce our emissions. One is to either offset our flying through certified offsets or sustainable aviation fuel, of which there is very little or be very conscious about flying. So I'm being very intentional about my flying.
0: Flying less is basically the biggest biggest thing we can do, right? Sort of if if you have to put it that way. However, I'm saying this because I, you know, I don't work in the aviation industry right now. So I think I can say that. Um, If you think of the redux sort of, you're saying it's very hard and I, I would agree, but when we look, so going one step back, when you said, what can I do? And I think it's a very, uh, it's a great question to ask because everything we do day to day is and any, anything that allows us to reduce our carbon footprint in our day-to-day life can be just sort of completely thrown out of the water, blown out of the water by one flight to Thailand, right? Sort of, let's say, live in Europe, go to Thailand on vacation. That offsets everything that I've done, tried to to, to reduce in my life. So ideally, I fly maybe a shorter flight and go to Italy for a vacation, or I even take the train um, or an electric vehicle. So there's a lot I can do. But then when I look at global emissions at a macro scale, aviation is a very small contributor, I believe, in total carbon emissions. So it's it's super counterintuitive. And I guess it's very important for all of ourselves as individuals to think about what can we do. The impact is actually much bigger then when we look at you know, general, sort of general other industries that have bigger emissions, we shouldn't use that as an excuse and say, "Ah, oh, it's just a small part. Um, there's definitely a lot we can do, I would say. Um, now, you talked about it's very hard for the aviation industry to, to, to change. Um, you mentioned a couple of things like sustainable aviation fuel, et cetera. Can, us, can you walk us through like, what kind of technologies or strategies are being used to reduce carbon emissions? At the moment, maybe today and what's maybe possible in the future.
1: So let's, this is a whole book. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's the whole game. book. Give <laughs> us a teaser. Give us a teaser. So let's, let's start from, from the top. Firstly, I would like to uh, clarify, I'm a complete aviation geek, as you can tell. I've got, I used to say I've got jet fuel in my veins. Now I probably have to say I've got SAF in my veins, but <laughs> I love travel. I truly believe travel makes the world a smaller and a better place. I still remember the best tour of Zurich I ever got was walking around with you. And I have great memories of, you know, walking around the streets of Zurich, visiting the Singapore Airlines office with you, and then, uh, you know, trying out the little local foods that I obviously couldn't even pronounce or know that they <laughs> existed. So travel makes the world better and smaller, and it's essential. Think about it. Uh, We've had no travel for or less travel for the last three years and we now have a war. Definitely correlation, I'm not saying causation. But um, you're right, overall aviation is just 2.5% to 3.5% currently and that's uh, because aviation is skewed dramatically towards the western nations and not necessarily to the global south where most of the world population lives or the global east. You know, less than 1% of Indians have flown. Less than 5% of Mexicans have ever flown internationally. Um, That's where the growth is coming from. And what this means is aviation is the fastest growing source of carbon emissions. Gotcha. So uh, that's one. So, yes, we are starting from a low base, 2.5%, but it's the fastest growing. And if nothing is done, then by 2030, it will be over 12%. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: More importantly... Um, you mentioned, you know, potentially going to Thailand for Europeans, right? Yes, you take the long haul flight, but then you have to stay at a hotel. You have to take an Uber. You have to eat. You have to do lots of things. You have to take tours. A bunch of other things come in. You have to stay at a hotel. Um, Aviation is 3.5%. But if you include travel as a whole, it's 8%. If you expand that to include hospitality, which is hotels... That is 11%. Now we are getting to textile levels. Mm-hmm. And this is excluding construction of the hotels, which obviously uses a lot of cement. Then it's way through the roof. So we have to look at it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Yes, the flying itself is 2.5%. But who only flies? Yeah, right. Um, you, you have to go do the local stuff. Um, and... That's the important perspective to keep in mind when you travel today.
0: Gotcha. Uh, Didn't uh, Air India just order also a few planes? 400 Uh, or something? (laughs)
1: The world's largest order, four hundred and seventy to be exact. I was quoted in Bloomberg yesterday talking about it. So it's a fresh uh, topic. Interestingly, though, more planes doesn't necessarily mean bad for the planet. Let me explain. These Air India planes will have... 20% 20% less of fuel burn than the current Air India planes. More importantly, most Indians currently fly internationally, stopping once or twice either in the Gulf, Emirates, Qatar Airways, or in Europe. The cheapest way to fly from anywhere in India to New York, for example, is on Lufthansa or on Swiss. My parents in law who live in India often come to visit us in Canada, fly Swiss and Lufthansa all the time. Guess what? When your India has 500 planes, they're going to be flying nonstop to all these places and you avoid a stop. You're flying a more efficient plane. You're avoiding a stop. Your emissions are lower. Moreover, Indians are not necessarily the biggest business class flyers in the world. So these planes will be densely packed. There'll be more people flying economy class and premium economy and not necessarily business class. So your per passenger emission is also lower. Mm-hmm. I actually believe with Indians flying nonstop, On newer planes, in economy class, overall uh, emissions will actually reduce, not increase, despite the new planes.
0: Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I mean, it correlates still with sort of the move maybe towards uh, more passengers overall, but um, thanks for the explanation. Are there other technologies that you feel like um, that can contribute to either keeping emissions in check or, or reducing them?
1: So, yeah, let's start with what's happening today or what's possible today. Mm -hmm. Other than intentional flying and be conscious about when you travel, if you do need to travel, there are only a few ways today you can reduce your emissions. One is you can choose certified carbon offsets. And there are companies like Carbon Click from New Zealand or choose that enable airlines to sell certified offsets within their booking path. And the second way is using sustainable aviation fuel. The caveat there is airlines can only fly up to 35% sustainable aviation fuel today in a flight, and there is very little of it. So for example, Mm -hmm. um, every single United Airlines flight out of Los Angeles has SAF on it, but it might be a drop or two (laughs) or Mm -hmm. a liter or two, not the entire flight, right? So there's limited availability and it's very expensive SAF. Currently, is three to five times the cost of jet fuel, depending on which part of the world you are in. Um, and those are the really the only two ways where you can offset your flying these
0: uh, today. Mm-hmm. What 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 are the offsets doing? I've seen different criticism or sort of different opinions about it as well. What what do you mean by offsetting?
1: So, offsetting um, firms how they work is they partner with the likes of Gold Standard, uh, which has a bunch of projects from cleaner cooking stoves, to windmill projects in India, to mangrove reforestation in Madagascar, to something, you know, in Winkle, where you might be planting some trees, there might be a project (laughs) right behind where you live. And you can choose which projects you want to contribute to. For example, the last uh, flight I took, uh, Air Canada offered me the ability to offset my flight. And I chose the Great Bear Forest, which is not too far from where I live in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Because it's closer to home, I I know they're going to conserve it and it, they preserve it. So um, there are projects being offered, but the critical element why these projects get criticized is that of additionality. And without getting into the weeds, how additionality works is, would this tree have been cut had you not contributed the money? Or would this windmill have continued tr- supplying electricity to this village in Gujarat in India? Had you not contributed? Is it additional because you're contributing? That's where the controversy comes in. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, some companies have wrongly claimed that these trees, this entire forest would have disappeared. But it wouldn't because it's on the side of a cliff and you need a helicopter to chop these trees down. And it's very expensive to chop these trees down. So that's what some companies have sold. Mm -hmm. And it would have always stayed there anyway. So your money is just going in someone's pockets, not necessarily saving those trees. And that's where the most successful carbon offsetting companies focus on hyper-transparency and not just localization. So companies like the one I mentioned, Carbon Click, is a good one. Um, it's a, it has a B2C platform as well for, where you and I can say, we will pay this amount to offset our footprint every month in addition to the travel, mm-hmm. uh, or choose that work with airlines. Both of them work with airlines, um, are very transparent. And I think transparency builds trust mm-hmm. when it comes to offsetting.
0: Gotcha. Um, now we talked about sort of what's possible today. What do you think, I mean, will, they, will the capacity of SAF be increased in the future or are there other alternatives in your point of view?
1: So SAF capacity is definitely increasing. In fact, between 2022 and 2023, uh, some of the largest SAF makers like Neste are increasing capacity by 20-fold year on year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, there's very little to go around. Uh, there are systems in place today called book and claim, where an airline can choose to operate a flight powered by SAF. But guess what? Technically, it will have it may have zero SAF because let's <laughs> say a flight from Japan to Singapore. Japan has no SAF. Singapore does. A flight from Japan to Singapore might claim to be net zero, but the SAF using the book and claim system might have been bought using a company called World Energy in Los Angeles International Airport with their SAF. Mm-hmm. And that amount of fuel is pumped onto various flights in Los Angeles, including, let's say, United's, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, so SAF is not everywhere. It's quite expensive. Hence, it's disparate. The capacity is increasing, but nowhere close to the needs of the industry. There are also constraints on how. SAF is being produced is it fully green is it from biostock and um, and is it an e fuel
0: or not mm-hmm. okay and how about other alternatives <laughs> yes. so we' still
1: on, we're still still on the near term uh, let's let's zoom out a little bit the industry aviation as a whole has committed to reaching net zero by 2050 how do mm-hmm. we get there it's a combination of offsets SAF and New types of aircraft, which are more efficient. So when you say Air India, they'll be taking the most efficient aircraft, but they are still the current generation. But let's bring in two more technologies, which is electric planes and hydrogen planes. Mm -hmm. Both of these hold potential for the long term. Electric planes in terms of regional aviation. Hydrogen can start with regional, but indeed can go long haul. Let's start with electric. There are a few very promising startups in the space of electric aviation, including Hart Aerospace, which is a Swedish uh, startup based in Gothenburg, Sweden. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, have, uh, they will be launching a 19-seater plane in 2025, followed by a 30-seater fully electric plane, I believe, before the end of the decade. You will be able to definitely fly them between the fjords in Norway and up in the Scottish islands, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully more after that. But it's still a regional 19 to 30-seater plane. Electric batteries are heavy, and you have to carry the full load of the batteries, whether they are full or not, right? You have mm-hmm. gone both ways. So there there is that constraint. So you can't fly very, very, very far. You can't fly to Thailand on an electric aircraft, for
0: example. Might might be a way, way too many stops, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. to get there. Um, or, or we're back to the 1960s, uh, right, when, when the planes left in London and had to stop six times until they reached uh, exactly. Asia. Right? So,
1: uh, it was interesting. I was having a chat with the CEO of Heart Aerospace, and one of his big customers is Air New Zealand. And I asked him, how are you even going to deliver this plane to New Zealand? You know, that's that's a lot of flying. And where are you going to charge uh, let's say, near uh, Basra in Iraq or something like that. He says, no, we're going to dismantle it and probably assemble it in New Zealand. Uh, we, we can't fly that that far. Mm-hmm. So let, let's see how that turns out. That is a real constraint. That's mm-hmm. where hydrogen comes in. Now, hydrogen uh, is very interesting because it is light. It is easy to make anywhere. It's just electrolysis. We all did that in chemistry lessons in secondary school. And um, it's something that, has been done before in cars. Toyota still has a hydrogen car, for example, uh, a hydrogen fuel cell car. And there are two very promising companies there. One is called Universal Hydrogen, which is started by the former CTO of Airbus. Mm -hmm. And another one called Zero Avia, which is uh, started by a guy who helped Tesla build its supercharger network and the charging network across the US. Both of these are very promising. Both of them are testing small aircraft with hydrogen now and there are two constraints with hydrogen one hydrogen is much more voluminous than jet fuel as you probably can imagine so to fly long haul on hydrogen we need new airplane designs which can carry a lot more fuel in terms of volume than the current plane. so you might have a blended wing plane for those of you who might have seen um, maverick uh, top gun maverick in the opening scene there's a very cool plane you might be flying something That looks closely like that in 2050 uh, with hydrogen on board rather than the tube and wings plane that we have these days, a blended wing uh, kind of a structure. The other constraint with hydrogen, though, is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So airports need to store this hydrogen somewhere or they need to be trucking it to the planes. Uh, And that requires a lot of space. So, you know, for example, an airport the size of Heathrow will need to build an entire... Storage capacity the size of another new terminal if it has to supply hydrogen to every flight taking off uh, from the airport. So the ecosystem needs to work together. The good news is the ecosystem is working together uh, and we will definitely get there slowly but surely.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got the airlines, you've got the airplane makers, you've got governments, you've got the airports. Like, it sounds like you can't really say who plays the biggest role in this. It's sort of a that needs to be orchestrated together. But if you had to pick one of them, like who can influence this the most? Is it the government? Is it policymakers? Or or is it the industry?
1: Yeah, I think we need to come together for this. Uh, If you look at the EU ETS right now, which is the emissions scheme, uh, it's a stick approach compared to the US, which is a carrot approach uh, towards carbon pricing and incentives. Um, So you've got carrot and stick from governments, which incentivize manufacturers and and everyone. So let's use the example of Airbus here. Airbus has bet big on the hydrogen plane, and it's working with airports and airlines in different parts of the world to build hydrogen hubs. So Airbus, for example, just signed a deal with a bunch of small airports in New Zealand to make them into testing hydrogen hubs. They have done the same in North America and South America as well so eu pressure combined with airbus's reach combined with pioneering airlines like air new zealand for example that's how you bring the entire ecosystem together it's not Mm
0: -hmm. one person's job you know that reminds me when they introduced the a380 uh and that plane couldn't dock in many airports so they actually had to work with the airports first before planes could fly there so that's a bigger project with hydrogen that's for sure but it sounds very similar (laughs) Same again.
1: Yeah. you're right i was involved in launching the a380 with airbus in in a number of cases and i absolutely remember the wingspan being too big to cross the taxiways and then oh we need how many gates do we need <laughs> how many aero bridges do we need uh and we never can use stairs
0: obviously <laughs> exactly we never can use stairs i remember that too cool um I think we could talk on for another hour, to be honest, but I have to bring this a little bit to a close. Um, thank you so much for sharing your views on sustainable flying. I, I'm super excited about your book, I have to say. Like, we're definitely going to talk about it uh, once once it's out. Um, but maybe to come uh, back to sort of a personal note, um, if you can share maybe one story of one of maybe the most memorable flight you ever taken, maybe a flight that you would ever we would take it again if you could.
1: Um. Oh man, I love flying. So you know, there's a slew of memorable flights. One comes to mind. It was almost exactly ten years ago. Uh, I started the flight around one a.m. Uh, from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and I had supper in Jeddah at one a.m. I think it was the twenty fourth of January, if I'm not wrong, um, ten years ago, and I flew to London i landed in time for breakfast i had meetings there at heathrow breakfast meetings uh had a couple of hours of breakfast meetings boarded the 10am flight from heathrow to seattle i had lunch meetings with boeing on the same day because i'm getting back in time had lunch meetings with boeing in uh, seattle for 3 hours i think we met at 1pm i landed at 12 noon or so 1pm I mean, till about 4pm and then from there i a bus up to Vancouver and had dinner with my parents. And I was still on the same date, which oh, was wow.
0: pretty cool. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'm glad you made it for dinner. <laughs> 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 Amazing. Hey, thank you so much for joining. Um, I would, I'm definitely going to link your um, website, Simply Flying and the book in the show notes. If uh, anybody uh wants to listen to Shazhang's podcast, If uh, if everybody out there loves flying as much as we do, Um, go ahead uh, and click on that link as well. Um, If you liked today's episode, please like it, subscribe to our podcast, and um, see you next time. Bye, guys.